wasn't very long ago that I was walking in the hallway here at church on a Sunday morning, and you pass people, and good morning, how are you, good to see you, and we, the thing we kind of all do, uh, and a woman who was a member here uh, said to me, she said, Pastor, I said, good morning, how are you, and she said, I'm doing great, Pastor, she smiled, she, and she said, guess what? I said, what? She said, I want you to know that I am a master theologian. And I smiled from ear to ear and I thought, I love it that you just told me that. Because that told me, number one, she'd read something I'd written. But number two, on a little more serious level, I knew what she meant because she was referring to a great quotation by that Baptist preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, where he essentially says, if you know the difference between the law of God, what he requires, and the gospel of God, what he provides in Jesus, you are a master theologian. He also goes on to say that the root of many, 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 many problems when it comes to understanding Jesus and why he came and what he did and assurance and all those kinds of things are traced back to our misunderstanding. If we're not clear on what God requires and how that's different from what God provides, we're going to get ourselves in a lot of trouble. So my goal as a pastor at Omaha Bible Church would be that every single one of you would be a master theologian. It doesn't take much, as a matter of fact. We just have to have some clear understanding of what God uh, God requires and what God provides. He's the one that meets the need. That's why we need Jesus. And so this morning what we're going to do is we're going to continue talking about how Jesus is better. Usually we're in a book of the Bible. We just finished a study of 1 John. We're probably going to start 2 John pretty soon. But we're taking a little bit of time talking about Jesus being better. Last week we looked at Luke chapter 10. I'm going to read from Luke 10 uh, in just a moment by way of review because we saw in Luke chapter 10 what Jesus teaches God requires. And then we're going to look at Romans chapter 2 and we're going to see the Apostle Paul teaching essentially the same thing, what God requires. Because if we don't know what God requires, we'll never understand what Jesus did, what Jesus provides. So if you want to turn to Luke chapter 10, you can go ahead and look at that text with me. We're talking about Jesus. What did Jesus do? What did he come to do? What did he accomplish? And if we understand that, then we can understand why he's praiseworthy and why we can trust him. Last Sunday, we talked about the thing behind the thing. And we're going to keep talking this morning about the thing behind the thing. We say, well, Jesus is the answer. Yeah, but what's the question? It's the thing behind the thing. What does God require? How can we know what Jesus really did? unless we understand what God requires, the thing behind the thing. Then we understand who Jesus is. So I hope I can congratulate each of you today on being master theologians before we leave. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, is this account with Jesus. And notice what it says in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer, an expert in the Bible's law, stood up to put Jesus, him, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? There's the zillion-dollar question. That's the right question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, this is Jesus speaking to him, What is written in the law? 
How do you read it? And he, the expert, answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, You have answered correctly. And then Jesus says, Do this and you will live. What do we do to inherit eternal life? Love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, if you do that, you will live. And in the context, clearly it's eternal life. So the question is, what does God require? God requires perfect obedience to His law, summarized here as loving God and loving neighbor. And if you do that perfectly, then you will gain eternal life. Is that law or gospel? Is that what God requires or is that what God provides? Well, I hope you're just using great self-control right now and maybe you're a little bashful, but it's law. That's what God requires. If you obey perfectly, as other more mature Christians have said before us, personally, perfectly, perpetually, if you obey Him perfectly, you'll get eternal life. God's fair, God's just. That's the standard. The problem is, we're sinners. And so we need not only to know what God requires, we need to know what God provides. And now we can know what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to do everything perfectly right, to meet the obligation, to meet the requirement. So he came as our substitute in our place to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love his neighbor as himself, and then... He gave himself up to be crucified to suffer the penalty of our not doing that. And he was raised from the dead, successful. He did it. He did this so he could live, so we could live. These are just basic things. But how many people do you know who don't know the principle of do this and live. I know tons of people who don't know the principle, do this and live. And so it's no wonder they don't know about the real meaning of the promise of Jesus saying, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. They don't know what that means. They're missing out. They're missing out on the significance. They're missing out on the, on the, the, the fuel for worship. The joy of the Lord resting in Him and not in themselves. So I hope you can have it straight in your mind so you can help other people have it straight in their mind so that we might glorify Christ as He should be honored and glorified. The thing behind the thing is one way of looking at it. Last time we talked about this text, I called it a touchstone. A touchstone where you always run back to and you see if your gold or your silver is real or not by rubbing it on the touchstone. Well, I want to find out if people understand the gospel by seeing if they understand the great reality from Jesus of do this and live. Because if we don't understand the principle of do this and live, we're in trouble. It's a touchstone. We've got to be able to go back there again and again and again. What does God require? What does Jesus provide? 
Now, Romans 2.13, for reinforcement. I'm not going to call Romans 2.13 a touchstone text. It kind of is, but I think today I'll call it a reinforcement text because it's the same kind of thing. Same kind of thing. Romans 2.13, and once we read the text, we're going to read it again and again and again, but once we read it, you're going to see it's similar, and what I have this morning are seven questions to help us understand it. Seven questions to then help us understand it, and then we're going to celebrate communion, which is fitting. I would even venture to guess that if we couldn't have it make sense, the sermon and communion fit together, the sermon's probably messed up. Every sermon should lead to, well, we could have communion and it would be fitting because we're talking about what God provides because He meets the requirement of what He requires. I'm excited. I hope you're excited. I hope you are ready for Romans 2.13. We'll look at the context in a moment, but for now, let's just read it. Romans 2.13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. I've got lots of questions. I told you I have seven, but I might have lied because I'm going to lead with a question before the question. Law or gospel? I hope you can answer it, but if you can't, you came to the right place. My first question regarding Romans 2.13 is, is it true? Obvious answer. Yeah, it's true. It's in the Bible. He's not just Paul the dude. He's Paul the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks with the same authority, same message. But, but I, I kind of wonder if some people think it's true. It's pretty outlandish. It's pr- pretty, pretty intense. Who does God justify? God justifies not those who are familiar with the law, those who do the law. This this is a compliment, this is a reinforcement to the do this and live passage. I I wonder if you really think it's true. If we could disguise it and kind of change it and maybe don't quote it as Romans 2.13, I know lots of people who would say it's not true. I want you to say it's true and understand the work of Christ in light of it if you are a Christian, or even if you aren't a Christian. So question number one, is it true? Yes, that's pretty, pretty easy. How about question number two? What is it saying at face value? What's it saying at face value? Well, let, let's, let's work on it a little bit. Okay, let's dig in a little bit. Romans 2.13, For it is not the hearers of the law... Well, if we, if we let Jesus help us know what the law is, which I think is a really good idea... Love God, love neighbor. And by the way, this is not just the law of Moses because Paul in chapter 2 talks about even the non-Jews have the law of God written on their hearts. So this is the, the requirement of God on everybody, starting with Adam. So, it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. Righteous means adherence to law, okay? Okay? Obeyer of law. 
It's a law word. So what kind of person is seen by God as an obeyer of his law, not just the ones who hear it, because that doesn't even make sense. The people who are seen by God as an adherer or keeper of his law are not people who hear it, but people who do it. Okay, so far so good. Those are the kind of people righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And again, big church words, I realize this, but they're important ones if you want to understand the difference between law and gospel and be a master theologian. Justified means to be declared righteous. So he's kind of saying the same thing in two different ways. Okay? You'll see what I mean if we read it again. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous or justified. Same, same essential idea and word before God, but the doers of the law who will be declared righteous. You could use it interchangeably. At face value, he's teaching the same principle as is taught by Jesus in Luke chapter 10. Do this and live. You want to have eternal life? Just obey the law perfectly and you'll have eternal life. That's fair. The Apostle Paul, picking up on the same idea at face value, says it's not people who just know about or hear God's law who are declared law keepers. Who's going to be declared a law keeper before God? If God is just, only those who are doers of the law. Okay. I don't know about you, but I don't like this. If that's all I know. Please don't leave, by the way. I promise we're going to... This, this is not the gospel. If that's all we know, these aren't happy times. Number three. What can we learn from the immediate context? A whole lot of things. The context of Romans chapter... Well, I, I, I almost want to let you off easy and make you feel good, okay? I'm not going to do it yet. Sometimes people read it and they say, but he's not talking about eternal life. He's talking about some other kind of justification, not eternal life justification, so we can all breathe easy that God doesn't really require perfect, perpetual, personal obedience. But when we read our Bible in context, he's talking about eternal life. How about verse 6, context? Verse 6, he's talking about the fairness of God, the justice of God. People get what they deserve. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. And then he gets to the 2.13 statement. So we know he's talking about eternal life. So God gives eternal life to people who do the right thing, always perpetually, personally, and perfectly. That's a mouthful. So everybody who loves God perfectly and loves neighbor perfectly, appropriately, gets eternal life, gets justification. Good news? No, it's not good news. But if we don't know it's what God requires and in principle how God works, I promise you, promise you, promise you, we'll never understand the, G the work of Jesus. So we got to do the hard thing first and realize the standard is here and it's not good news. It's not good news at all. Romans 2.13 isn't gospel. Romans 2.13 is raw, gloves off, law. It's true, but it's not good news. 
Are you with me? Okay, one more thing to learn about the context, and it's going to get better now, I think. Romans chapter 3. Okay, here's what happens in Romans. What happens in Romans is he gives a, a, a good introduction, and then in about chapter 1, verse 18, he starts his argument. And the argument goes to about chapter 3, verse 10, let's call and a little bit further than that, actually. It reaches its high point in 3.10. But what he's been arguing in Romans is, and what he argues is, no one meets the standard. No one who's related to Adam can do this and live. Because we're all sinful. That's what we learn in Romans. So when we get to Romans 3.10, how about Romans 3.10? Let's make sure we read chapter 2, verses Verse 13, in light of the big argument, Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Righteous is one who upholds God's law. There's not a single person related to Adam who can do this and live. There's not a single person who's related to Adam who's a true doer of the law. So therefore, there's not a single person related to Adam who on their own, I have to add that, have any hope of standing before God righteous. Any hope of justification whatsoever. It's terrible. It's awful. It's depressing. But it's the thing behind the thing. And what I mean by that is, if you weren't here last week, what God requires, we can't do. But that's the thing behind the thing. God requires perfect, perpetual, personal obedience. And so what we're meant to do is like the person in Luke 18 who learns about this and says, he beats his chest and says, be merciful to me, the sinner. In other words, the unrighteous, the lawbreaker. And he was a religious person. And now we're where we need to be. Because now we know we need help from the outside, not help from the inside. We need, I can't help myself, I'll just say it now. Okay, We need what the Apostle Peter, let's draw upon him too. We need the just, the righteous, for the unjust, so that we might be brought to God. But if we don't understand this, and I realize, you know, this is heavy and thick, and, and we've, we've done some multiple syllable words... <laughs> If we don't understand this, we really don't understand how great a Savior Jesus is. And He's not glorified as He should be. And you're not assured as you should be. So we've got to understand some of these touchstone texts and reinforcement texts. One thing I hope is, is I hope if you, let's just say you're a faithful member of Omaha Bible Church and you're here for, I don't know, 20 years. And you move and you go to, I don't know, where do you want to go? Somewhere good, okay? Well, well, I don't know. You go to San Diego, that's good, except for taxes and real estate. Anyway, let's say, let's say you go there. I hope you can find a church where you're a good church member and you don't always bother the leaders because you have all these weird views that Pat Abendroth taught you, the guy that can't even say his last name right, okay? I hope you can fit in and serve and be a blessing to the other men and women and boys and girls there and flourish, I don't want you to learn a bunch of weird stuff.
But I have to admit, I really do want to meddle with you a little bit when it comes to Romans 2.13 and Luke chapter 10. Because it's historic Protestantism. And I want you to be so clear on this that you would demand clarity on this. There is a law and there is a gospel. They're not the same. But in the gospel... Through what Jesus does, he meets the obligation and requirements of the law so that you can have assurance based upon what someone else has done. I want you all to be Romans 2.13 reinforcement people. And I want you to be do this and live principle Luke chapter 10 people. And you've got it clear in your mind. I so badly want that. It's gotten to be a problem for me. I think I'm going to see a counselor pretty soon about it tongue-in-cheek. I want to know what somebody believes about Romans 2.13. And if, I don't, if they don't have Romans 2.13 right, I, I, I really wonder how they really understand justification by faith alone. And now I'm ahead of myself. Number four. four question number four. Why is it essential that we let this stand? Why is it essential that we just let the weight of it be the weight of it. Well, because it's what God says. It's because Christ and Christ alone meets the obligation. And we can be like Paul. Why don't you turn over to Romans chapter 7, verse 10. Romans chapter 7, verse 10 is so helpful when Paul has understood these things and he just goes back to the the principle of do this and live. He goes back to the principle of Doers of the law will be justified. And I love Romans chapter 7 verse 10 where he says, The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. He understands the do this and live principle. The very commandment that promises life. Do this and live. Only the doers of the law will be justified. It's uh, the very promise. For me, Paul says, because of chapter 5, he's united to Adam, is death. We've got to let it stand so we can understand how great Jesus is and what Jesus has provided. I like Romans chapter 4, verse 5 as well, but if I go at that rate, we'll go at every verse in Romans because I think it all complements it. But Romans chapter 4, verse 5, if you don't understand this, you're, you're going to... You, you can't put Romans 4, 5, and 2, 13 together without starting, you know, some sort of fire or something. But if you understand the principle, you can understand the two together. Romans 4, 5 says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Justifies the ungodly. God justifies those, he's in another way of saying, God justifies those who aren't the doers of the law. God justifies the ones who aren't righteous. Say, what? How can this be? He only justifies the doers. And then in chapter 4, He justifies the ones who aren't the doers. And the Bible is alphabet soup. It's not. It's not at all. Because by the time He's in chapter 4, He's made it clear that this is the reality. This is the principle that's true. If you 
Do the law, you'll be justified. But you don't. None righteous, no, not one. And then he introduces Jesus into the equation in the latter part of chapter 3. Jesus is the righteous. Jesus is the doer. Jesus is the one. Now we get to the place in chapter 4, verse 5, God justifies the ungodly, which otherwise would have been an impossibility. If we're still in chapter 3, verse 10, and we say, God justifies the ungodly. I'd say, no, he doesn't. He does, though, because Jesus walks into the room. The just for the unjust, in our place. Jesus does all the right things. And then is treated as if he did all the wrong things. So that his work is credited to you by faith. It's awesome. It is amazing. Staggering to the mind. And if you get that, you, you, you get the Bible. The Bible's filled with commands. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of commands. Lots of them sound like Romans 2.13. Lots of them sound like Luke chapter 10. Do this and live. Only the doers of the law will be justified. And you're faced then with an opportunity to either be, I can do it, delusional. I can do it with the help of religion, delusional, arrogance. I can do it with the help of God. No, you're in Adam. I can't do it. I'm desperate. Yes! That's right. So you've got to look outside of yourself for righteousness. It's a game changer. It changes everything. And if you get that, you are a master theologian. You get it. You get the difference between the two great realities. The glory of Christ is why we do this. Assurance is why we do this. Romans 3.26 says, It is to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's all this just justification, righteousness. It's because God is a judge and He's fair and He gives people what they deserve. We need Jesus to walk in the room and do it in our place so that God can uphold His law and not be a compromiser because of the substitute. Number five, what are common missteps with Romans 2.13? Common missteps. Common misstep is we take it out of context and we don't read 1, 2, and 3. Another common misstep is we don't read chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 and see it's talking about eternal life. Another misstep is we don't read it in light of what Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 10. Do this and live. Another misstep is we fail to see Jesus as the one who fulfills God's law. Chapter 3, verse 26. Another failure, another misstep here is we fail to leave obedience. Some of us like to call it sanctification in chapter 6 and following. It's a huge misstep. Should Christians do the right thing? Christians should do the right thing. Christians have power to do the right thing. Christians have the Holy Spirit. Christians have the Bible. Christians should and are expected to do the right thing. And, and that's absolutely right, absolutely true. But please, don't find that in justification texts. Leave it in Romans 6, where it belongs. Because if you introduce our good works and our standing and our doing the right thing for justification in chapter 2, 
or anywhere, quite honestly, before chapter 6. You've just joined a different religion other than the one you thought you were a part of. Okay? But we love our pound of flesh. Man, I listened to two sermons yesterday and they were pound of flesh sermons. Romans 2.13, man, what did the pastor say? Folks, and he was yelling and screaming. My wife was even imitating him. She said, what are you listening to? I won't yell and scream. Folks, look at your life. Is it a fulfillment of the law? Romans 2.13. Get busy. Don't you all know that God doesn't justify hearers. He justifies doers. So you better start obeying. He talked to them about speaking the right way, living the right way, giving the right amount of money, reading their Bible enough times, and it was pound of flesh, pound of flesh, pound of flesh, pound of flesh. It was law preached as gospel or the opposite. I don't mind telling you to start talking the right way. I kind of like pound of flesh. (laughs) I don't mind telling you that you need to obey God. Because you do. But not for your justification. You want to obey God because of your justification. Chapter 6 obedience, not chapter 2 obedience. It's critical that we understand this. You all could be great, 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 great missionaries if you could just own these kinds of realities. And you could start by evangelizing your evangelical friends. True or false, Jesus says we have to obey God's law perfectly or there is no eternal life. It's a trick question, isn't it? But the question behind the question, at first we better say it's true. In principle, it's true. Because then we can understand what Jesus has done. Otherwise we can't understand what Jesus has done. We also fail to see justification as something that's finished and done for us as believers. Romans chapter 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, context faith in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, spiritually speaking, I read that and I just go, Night, night. I have peace with God. I don't have to work for peace with God. I have peace with God. I have been justified by faith in Jesus. It's done. It's over. I'm resting. Jesus is my Sabbath rest. And out of the rest, I'm motivated to do the right thing because I already belong to the family. This is one of the reasons why the, the reality of assurance is so scandalous. Because if you can assure people of their salvation... It's because you've taught them justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. It's amazing. It's amazing. Here's what one very popular Bible teacher says. He calls himself a Reformed theologian. He says... I think that when Paul says doers of the law will be justified, he means that there really are such people. And they are the only people who will be acquitted at the judgment. 
know. Number six, where can support be found for this outside of the Bible? In one sense, who cares? But I just want you to know that this isn't just something I have made up. Um, This is historic Reformation Protestantism. Law, gospel, both are important because Jesus is the one that meets the requirement. Charles Hodge, this is from the 1850s. He's just a classic, traditional, back when Princeton had a soul, uh, Bible commentator. Old school, okay? Not new school. Not the people who say, well, we don't really have to pay attention to what everybody else has believed ever. We, we have it all figured out. Those are the people who teach that justification is by our works in Romans chapter 2 and we need to run. Here's Charles Hodge. He is not, Paul is not speaking of the method of justification available for sinners, as revealed in the gospel, but of the principles of justice which will be applied to all who look to the law for justification. Yeah! Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. You think you can do it on your own? Only the doers of the law will be justified. Have fun with that. In principle, it's true. Practically, it can't be true for anyone because of chapter 3, verse 10. Here's another more lengthy quotation from John Calvin because some of you like him and some of you don't. So I gave you Charles Hodge and I'm going to give you John Calvin. But John Calvin, even if you don't like him, was a chief architect, if you will, of helping people during Reformation times, sort out their Bibles because it's filled with laws and it's filled with gospel and how can we make sense of things? So here's Calvin. That if righteousness be sought from the law, the law must be fulfilled. For the righteousness of the law consists in perfection of works. They who pervert this passage for the purpose of building up justification by works, deserve most fully to be laughed at even by children. He's saying it's so obvious that he's talking about principle, not reality, in light of chapter 3, that little kids should go, that person doesn't know what they're talking about. I don't care if they have a PhD. They should even be laughed at by children. It is therefore improper and beyond what is needful to introduce here a long discussion on the subject with the view of exposing so futile a sophistry, just philosophizing, making things up. I'm going to skip a portion of it because some of you look like you don't like Calvin. Now, we do not deny but that perfect righteousness is prescribed in the law, but as are all convicted of transgression or sin, we say that another righteousness must be sought got to look outside of yourself. And finally, still more, we can prove from this passage that no one is justified by works. For if they alone are justified by the law who fulfill the law, it follows that no one is justified. For no one can be found who can boast of having fulfilled the law. End of quotation. And I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to disagree with Calvin at the end there. I'm actually agreeing with him, but I'm going to play facetious. Notice I didn't say devil's advocate. No one can be found 
who can boast in having fulfilled the law. True or false? It's false. Calvin says no one can be found who can boast in fulfilling the law. Who can be found to boast in fulfilling the law? Jesus. Matthew chapter 5 verse 17. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came, sounds like boasting to me. I came to fulfill the law. Yeah, Jesus did. And Calvin wouldn't disagree with that, by the way. But the reality in chapter 2 is, as I like to say, the line of those who are doers of the law who will be justified before God is really, 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 really short. But there is one who stands in the line. And that's why we need to believe in Him so that His righteousness is then credited to us. And if that's the case, you stand before God as if you did everything right your whole life. You know, if we, we talk today about who in this room has been the Christi- a Christian the longest... Let's just say somebody's been, in the Christian, been a Christian for 80 years. That could actually be true. If there's somebody who's been a Christian for 80 years, and I'm going to pick on you, Tom, okay? Converted in February, right? Who is more justified? It's a trick question. Because the Bible teaches you're justified by faith in Jesus. Equal standing before God the moment you trust in Jesus because Jesus did it all. Doesn't mean there's not spiritual growth. We call that sanctification. But we need to understand, and if you understand this, you'll have assurance because you're not looking to yourself. Number seven, how does your view of Romans 2.13 affect your view of Jesus? You're going to be part of the, 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 the camp of him or you. If your justification has something to do with you, then, then, then you're some kind of do-gooder. But if it's all of him then it's all about Him. The Apostle Paul says, we don't boast in anyone other than in Christ. You're going to be a Jesus boaster. You're going to be one who rests in Him and not in yourself in the least bit. You're going to be looking to Him and boasting in Him and honoring Him and glorifying Him and you're going to be the kind of person that can have assurance. It also means you're not going to be what I like to call a glory grubber. See, if he did it all, then he gets all the credit and all the glory. And I can keep my grubby hands off of it. He's a Savior who saves to the uttermost. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, I hope this encourages you. I realize it's a little bit polemical, a little bit argumentative. I hope you will study this and see if it's really true, if you don't think it's true. But I hope you're the kind of person that can read your Bible and understand the difference between law and gospel. And you can know that God's law is good, but it's just against you because you're sinful. 
And then you can look to Jesus who meets the obligation. Positively by doing the right thing and negatively by dying and taking away the guilt because the wages of sin is death. I hope you're that kind of person. I kind of also hope you're not cantankerous uh, or kind of mischievous, kind of a, 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 I don't want you to be a, a, a grumbler kind of person, but I hope you find Matthew 10 as a touchstone. And I hope you find Romans chapter 2 as a touchstone. Not long ago, and I'll end with this, and then we're going to recognize what Jesus did for us, that it's all of Him. When we eat, we're remembering it's all of Him. When we drink, we're remembering it's all of Him. And He tells us to do it till He returns because we need to keep remembering it's all of Him. But not too long ago, I wanted to invite a preacher to come here and preach. Met him before, liked him, went to a good school, We seem to have some things in common. thought it would be good to introduce him to you. Very passionate, very clear, very articulate. And I saw he was preaching Romans. And it's ruined me for life, I just have to be honest. I thought, oh, I wonder wonder what he does with Romans chapter 2. Listen to the Romans chapter 2 sermon. And he's talking to the congregation about losing sleep. Maybe night after night not out of joy, not because he's so consumed with what a great Savior Jesus is, but he's so concerned that he, he, the preacher, and they, the congregation, might not do enough to be justified. That's the wrong answer. I don't care what the question is. We also, in the sermon, or maybe before the sermon, recommended a certain book to help the Christians in the church to fight sin. Now, I think it's good to fight sin. In fact, the book he recommended, I thought would be a good book to recommend when I'm in chapter 6. But to help you to fight sin so you could be justified in chapter 2 is heresy. And it steals your assurance. It robs your assurance. And it robs the glory of Jesus. And what we tend to see in history are those who were around the time of the Protestant Reformation who had to make it clear because Rome blurs law and gospel. They're experts at it. It's what they do. It's stock in trade Romanism. The Protestants, and last time I checked, that's us, were clear about Different things, but one thing for sure they're clear about when you read is this is what God requires and we can't do it and this is what Jesus provides and so we rest in Him. If you are a Protestant who believes in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, I hope you are. Rest in the finished work of Jesus. We should pray. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for the justifying work of Jesus. Thank you that he did everything necessary, that he was born under the law, as Galatians says, and that, as he said, he didn't come to abolish the requirement, but he met the requirement. And thank you that he was obedient to you even to the point of death, even death on a cross that our sins would be taken away and His positive righteousness would be given to us freely by grace. 
we wish these things were not polemical. We wish there was no debate about these things. And yet we know, according to the book of Galatians, these things have been debated issues for a long, long time. May we not be people, like Paul says, who are bewitched. May we be people who rest in Christ and proclaim Christ, that we positively promote the gospel and that we passionately defend the gospel. Thank you that Jesus gave himself up for us. Thank you that that unites us as a local church. Thank you that it unites us with other believers throughout the world and throughout history. Thank you for your saving grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.